they came through some of the hardest times that Japanese uh, society had to go through. But I didn't know the story before. My dad would, you know, like to tell us about, like, oh, I grew up in the poverty. You guys are all lucky because we have more money than I had ever imagined that, that we would have and all that stuff. But the, the story before of this, the war times, he never really talked about because he really didn't remember much of it. So, um, it's an interesting story that I hope to get more details out of a few surviving members of my family to compile into something one of these days, uh, hopefully uh, before too long. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 13 of Migrations. I'm Nisha Modi, your host. In this episode, my guest is another part of the creative talent team for Migrations. Today, you'll hear my conversation with Shin Kawasaki, who wrote what I call the Migration Song, which is actually called Find Another Way. Shin was recommended to me by Quincy Surasmith, my podcast editor, who, by the way, also hosts a fantastic podcast called Asian Americana, so check it out. And I was really intrigued by Shin's sounds. He calls himself a sound chaser, and after listening to his music, it's very obvious why. But before we get into this episode, I want to thank all of you for your support through rating and reviewing Migrations on Apple Podcasts, through telling your friends and family about it, and for your financial support as well. Shin is one of the people I invested in for this podcast because I thought it was essential to center Asian voices, whether they were behind the scenes or not. And now, Shin is both. This podcast takes a lot of time and labor, especially during this time of uncertainty. I can't tell you how much your support contributes to the success of this podcast. So if you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts and give me a rating and review. And if you're able, please contribute to Migrations. You can offer a monthly contribution at www.patreon.com slash migrations, or you could just do a one-time contribution. At the $5 a month level, I send you Migration stickers. And at the $10 a month level, you get a book handpicked by yours truly after six months. So check it out. That's www.patreon.com slash M-I-G-R-A-S-I-A-N-S. All right, let's get this episode started. Welcome, everyone. Today, I am going to be talking to Shin Kawasaki. He is the musician behind our migration song, Find Another Way. Shin was born in Japan and moved to Los Angeles in 1999 and considers himself Americanized Japanese. He is a self-described sound chaser and has a new EP release, which came out in February, titled Six Songs from Insomnia. Find him on all the streaming platforms under Shin Kawasaki, one word. And today we are recording on May 18th, 2020. I've been mentioning this in COVID times, just so everyone has a reference point for when this conversation is happening. So thank you so much for being here, Shin. How are you? I am good. Thank you for uh, having me. Yeah. So speaking of COVID, it's hard to not start conversations this way. How have things been for you as a musician? I believe you had your Tuesday night residency. So yeah, tell me, how's that been for you? Well, the Tuesday residency at the place called the uh, Escondite, which is uh, right in the middle of Little Tokyo and Skid Row, actually. And uh, we had done six shows, I think, before the pandemic 
declaration, which basically uh, shut down all the restaurants and bars and stuff. So uh, the business, I'm actually not sure. So this is May 18th and Saturday or Sunday night, actually, there was a big fire right across the street from that building. Oh my God. I heard from the owner briefly that the building itself is okay. But I just haven't been in touch with him all that closely because he was actually out of town for a little bit since the business closed down and everything. So there's a lot of uncertainties out there right now. It's interesting because it's like while this is happening, other things still happen. You know what I mean? People get sick in other ways and fires happen and all these things happen while the whole pandemic is going on, too. That's definitely uh, what I have been just actually thinking about in the last week or so. <laughs> for better or worse, it's become the new norm, right? This whole, you know, us on the lockdown, wearing masks everywhere. The news was already crazy before this whole thing happened. And then now this, but yeah, all kinds of issues and all kinds of uh, problems in the world are still <laughs> in existence. And just, it's a lot to rub my uh up anybody's head around. I'm definitely not the only one to be in a bit of a state of confusion and shock and all that stuff. Uh, going back to your question, as a musician, I'm just basically in a state of inactivity, except for the things that I can do online, which a lot of people have been doing. There's millions of live streams going up right now. A lot of my colleagues are being very productive, actually. And I'm trying to kind of keep up as much as I could. And I've, I've been posting more videos and quote-unquote content on uh, some of our social outlets and everything. But I'm also trying to utilize this time to kind of better myself in a way, trying to remain calm, finding some kind of inner peace through this confusion and chaos in the world. And uh, it's been actually, and I feel kind of bad to say this, but it's been a kind of a blessing in disguise in a way. Uh, I'm getting to the things that I just never had time or mental bandwidth to get to. So in a way, I'm treating it as an opportunity, basically, because you could always just go into the dark place in your emotion and your psyche, right? So No, definitely. I mean, I also kind of feel similarly that I've been able to do some things and had time to reflect that has been really beneficial for me. But at the same time, there are awful things about it. And I think those two things can exist together. But it's just kind of a, a somber time to have it happen at the same time, you know? Yeah. But the thing is, reflecting, I think, is a great word. And I don't want to... I try not to get on social media as much. I was very much... I just had the Twitter open on my browser at all times, like when this whole thing happened, just so that you could collect information, right? Because you just didn't know what it was. You didn't even know that you could be asymptomatic and still could be contagious. I mean, that was kind of a big thing for me. And I, it really, especially as a musician, you encounter so many random people in places. I live downtown LA, you know, highly crowded. I mean, like relatively more crowded than the rest of Los Angeles. And I actually have a handful of immunocompromised friends that I deeply care about. So it really triggered my paranoia. So I was keeping myself updated with any kind of news, any kind of information that I could get my hands on. 
and it really got to me after a while. So I had to kind of give myself a bit of a social media or the any like news kind of uh, uh, limit on myself to kind of go inwards instead of outdoors. You kind of have to have a healthy balance between those two, I feel. But I tend to think that it's better to look inward, especially at this time, than out because there's just so much misinformation right now. Not enough people know <laughs> enough about what's happening. So if that's the case, I'd rather not feed disinformation in my brain than just like something that I could just kind of work on my own, you know. So reflecting is a good word to describe what I've been actually on for the last at least couple of weeks. It is really scary, the whole you could be asymptomatic and potentially infect someone because that's not the case with a lot of other viral infections. Like if you have the flu, like the regular flu, you know you do and you know that you're contagious. So you try to stay home, you know, and this seems much more highly contagious. So I think it is scary. And I think your fears are warranted. And I was very similar at the beginning of this, like constantly checking the news, doing all that. And I've been able to pull back from it, too, because I think the initial shock, you know, is, is over. But at the same time, it wasn't good for me. I did also have to find that balance. So I completely relate to what you're saying. Yeah, well, I'm glad that you're able to find some space and outlets to share your music and talents online. I know I've tuned in a little bit on your Instagram. I've seen a couple things. And I'm glad, like I have, I have a friend who spins and I, he'll go live on Facebook. So I'm glad that there's these cool outlets. And I'm curious how it will look after things go back to people being able to go to physical venues and whatnot for music. I'm still curious if there might be more that's available through these live streams than before, just because of what's happened now. Hmm. It's... I don't know. I think the judges are still out on that one. I think the overall feeling amongst musicians or the music community is that it is of the uncertainty because music industry was not really doing all that well before this anyway, right? So streaming, yeah, everybody's really excited about all the, all the streaming aspect of things, but that only benefits very much just the top, whatever the percentage of people that can actually drive enough place to generate income. Whereas us on the 97% of creatives needed to get out on the street and just play live shows to generate some sort of uh, income, selling merch and whatnot. I actually don't know if anything is going to be back to what it was before COVID. The live venues are already closing. Troubadour supposedly might not reopen, which is, I don't know if you know, the Troubadour has been on the, uh, what is it, Santa Monica Boulevard in uh, West Hollywood for ages. That's where Elton John started, Jackson Brown, like Guns N' Roses actually did their uh, first show before they went on to do the reunion tour in like 2016 or whenever they uh, uh, decided to reunite. It's been a legendary venue in LA for the longest time and they might not even survive this whole thing. So if they can't survive, there's uh, much smaller venues. I don't know if they're going to be able to, along with it, all the other small businesses, which I been really trying as much as I could to support 
And if that is taken away from the music community, I really don't know what could come after this whole thing. And live streaming is one of the ways I know, um, I know a lot of guys that are actually doing it, but in terms of that as the uh, income source, I don't know. I really don't, I'd be surprised if that could comfortably replace the live gigs that we are so used to doing. So it's a scary time. And then that paranoia is warranted. This is the time that you really need to be thinking about. Well, I need, I feel like I need to be thinking about the next step. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Nothing is going to be what it was before and it will evolve. And especially, like you said, the creatives that really do need to go out there and play to survive. I mean, maybe it could be live streaming for some type of cost. I mean, who knows? I, I think it will it'll evolve. I think that's the... The biggest thing. Yep, yep, yep. And then I feel like if there's any upside, the technology might come around to accommodate the demand for a platform like that much faster than maybe it would have been if it weren't for this. People are using like Zoom. Now it was not really in the corporate world, so I never knew what it was. I mean, I kind of had heard about it, but you know, almost overnight, everybody's on it, and that's become where people gather you know it's almost like who knows maybe the zoom would start hosting music festivals yeah yeah <laughs> it's an opportunity for them right to expand their offerings um for sure well i wanted to talk to you a little bit about your story about what brought you to la but before that can you tell us a little bit about how your father came to japan so my dad is the youngest of four and he had a uh, he had a small business when I was growing up, and I basically was raised by my grandma. And my grandma would mention this story like here and there, and my dad would really never talk about it. But as I grew older, I, I came to learn that my dad actually was born in what is now a uh, like right on the border between northern China and North Korea when it was occupied by a uh, Japanese army. And then it was called Manchuria. My grandpa, who passed away when my dad was six years old, he basically went to Manchuria to work for Manchurian Railroad, which was somewhat of a common career move for a lot of uh, Japanese, especially in the rural areas. It was like almost like a gold rush out here, you know, like go west and, you know, make tons of money when you go into the, this new world. It's the West. It's the kind of a Japanese equivalent of that. Like whoever wanted to better their lives, they would take on. And Japanese army was really encouraging people to move to Manchuria so that they could really establish the Japanese dominance over the region by just having more Japanese uh, nationals over there. So my uh, grandpa moved over there I don't know the exact timeline, which is something that I uh, really need to look into. And they had been there for uh, over a decade. And that's when my dad was born. And just a few years after that, the war ended, Japan surrendered. So what happened, obviously, was, well, the Russians actually came and basically tried to take over the region. So all the Japanese natives basically had to evacuate. My grandpa supposedly had a handful of, um, I mean, there's no other way to say it, like North Korean servants around the house who supposedly was kind enough to help them basically escape. And in North Korea, right? So you basically had to go all the way down through uh, the Korean peninsula and just take the ferry boat from South Korea 
back to Japan, but the North Korea part was basically just heavily guarded and taken over by the Russian army. So they basically had to be totally incognito to get to the southern part of Korea. And they supposedly took a um, freight train down to the border. And once they got close enough, they basically had to be on foot right in the middle of the night in the total darkness and basically had to walk over the border in this pretty heavy forest. Just 10 or 20 of the people that was, I don't know if they actually knew each other when they were trying to cross the border by foot, but it was just mostly Japanese natives that were trying to escape from North Korea, did this uh, overnight excursion in the forest, basically trying to stay um, uh, stealth from a Russian army. And back then, I'm pretty sure there's just so many other forces. North Koreans, I'm pretty sure, weren't really fond of Japanese natives anyway. So if they had found that they were trying to escape, they would have uh, captured Japanese just right there and then because you know, Japanese weren't really doing any that much good in that whole region anyway. Even though they, none of this actually my dad remembers, my dad was way too young to remember any of these things, supposedly, but I got all these stories from my auntie who was a little bit older and a little bit here and there from uh, my grandma as well before she passed away. It's one of those things that like he never opened up to me about, but like once I found out, I was like, man, I need to get a little more, <laughs> little more details on that because it really explains his, his psyche. They, I knew that they came from poverty when they got to uh, Toyama, where I'm from, which is like right in the middle of uh, Japan mainland. They basically just came to a city that was just burned down to the ground, except for like maybe one building, and they were on the welfare. Everybody in the family had to go out and work while my dad was just too young to work. So he just basically stayed home and just kind of did all the house chores. They came through some of the hardest times that Japanese uh, society had to go through. But I didn't know the story before. My dad would you know, like to tell us about like, oh, I grew up in the poverty. You guys are all lucky because we have more money than I had ever imagine that that we would have and all that stuff but the, the story before of this the war times he never really talked about because he really didn't remember much of it so um it's an interesting story that i hope to get more details out of a few surviving members of my family to compile into something one of these days uh, hopefully uh before too long yeah that's such a fascinating story and there's so many parts of history that intersect there so many parts that we make assumptions or a lot of people just don't know about. Yep. And it's one of those things where I, I need to really just, just read up on a lot more. I mean, I know I know the basic kind of historical background. And especially now that I've been out here in uh, the States for 20 years, I think the tone back home in Japan has shifted a little. And I hear that there's a little bit of revisionist rhetoric happening around that whole area. I don't think the Japanese nationals want to admit to certain things that we had done in the past in that whole region and all that stuff. So I think it's really worth revisiting, especially the people in our generation that actually still have the connection to that generation, right? Because the younger folks might not. 
the Japanese society is just more and more compartmentalized, and they don't really have the, the sense of community that I barely had. Some, you know, and I I was lucky enough to actually be raised by my grandma, who lived till like almost ninety, and I think she was born in like nineteen hundred. So she had seen like three different emperors in her life in one of the most turbulent times in Japanese history. Not many people, younger generation, doesn't have the access to that kind of information. And if the education doesn't come around to really tell the stories in details in an unbiased way, then you know who's going to tell that story and who's going to learn from the mistakes that we've uh, made. Shin brings up a great point about how bias enters our history books and education systems so frequently. We are rarely taught the true histories because history is political. Publishing is political. Shin's story of how his dad escaped Manchuria is political. Shin talks more about the politics in Toyama, where he grew up, and in Japan generally. Where I come from, Toyama is basically kind of like a red state. It's very conservative. Japanese politics is not quite the、uh, binary that、uh, we're used to here in the states. Like, no, there's no like red blue context. It's it's just more just LDP one party that's been ruling over the last almost a century, and there's been a couple of exceptions here and there, but it's just mostly just a one party system. If you actually look at it from the outside perspective, you could see that as like almost—I mean, it's not really like a totalitarian or anything like that—but it's you kind of have to wonder like, what is the democracy that they claim to have? You just don't really know what. Well, if they don't really have any other option or not enough politicians that have the diverse perspectives and policies and all that stuff, and you know, what is the democracy? That's the, one of those things that I. Think about a lot since I've moved here in the states, but it's just one of those things where I don't know how much you know about the Japanese culture and stuff. But like Japanese tend to suppress, or at least they used to tend to suppress individualism heavily. It was considered the virtue to be in line with everybody else in the community, and that actually expanded. To the entire nation, like they just wanted to have like same. It's not quite the thought control to the level of like China or North Korea or anything like that. But you know, it, that was kind of like where at least my grandparents' generation kind of came through when they were right in the middle of the war. They were like, "Just we're the chosen people. We're children of God, and your God is the emperor." And If the emperor tells you to get on that airplane and die for your country, then that's the best way to live your life. And that people actually believed in that. And that's not even hundred years ago; it's sixty、like、some years ago they were doing that. And the people that lived through that can tell me, not everybody was really believing in it. Especially after the war, the the narrative basically kind of took the one eighty turn, and everybody basically almost kind of went. Like way left, thinking oh that the emperor system was the mistake and all that stuff, but that kind of diversity you don't really get to see on the surface levels just living in Japanese society because not many people kind of openly talk about it. Maybe Twitter is very big in Japan, so like now there's actually a platform for that diverse discussion could. Take place, but it's the same thing. Just like in the states, where like the fiery rhetoric just takes over, and like people just started like spreading disinformation and all that stuff, and it really gets ugly when those people that are spewing some fiery rhetorics might actually not know anyone from that era.
you know, they'd just be reading things from internet or like what have you. And they're just like trying to fit whatever the story that they got, whatever's convenient for their own viewpoint. They're trying to fit their narratives or like fit the text that they read to their own viewpoints. And I could tell you that it, I mean, at least like I have the privilege to actually talk to people that lived through that. And, you know, I'm a little bit older, so I kind of feel certain sense of responsibility and like I have to tell people about this so I have to tell this story somehow in a meaningful way that like people actually can take a peek inside what was happening you know it's interesting it's like there's this idea of being the collective and having one way of thinking and then individualism where there's platforms like Twitter and whatnot where everyone can say what they think. And it makes you wonder about where the connection between those are, like being community oriented, but also having your own thoughts, you know, and kind of like you said, connecting to others that have had those experiences as opposed to like just confirming their own biases. Right. Yeah, I <laughs> I, I might not have the most favorable uh, opinion on my own people. <laughs> And that's probably why I'm actually living out here. But um, Japanese, especially when I grew up in 80s, 90s, they really tend to kind of suppress the uh, expression of individualistic views. And I guess I was kind of, and I certainly don't think I was, but like people thought I was eccentric or something. You know, people thought I was like boisterous. People thought I was... <laughs> not abnormal, but definitely not the model Japanese citizen. And I, that kind of thought is the factor that it's kind of like almost like a mild thought control in a way. Like we're, we live in a democratic society, but it's not the government or the education. Well, education to a, to a certain degree, but like it's not the government or the police state that is, you know, suppressing people's freedom in like thoughts and all that stuff but it's the community it's this like they call it muraishiki like the village thing like you know you're part of this community so you better not vote for the other guy or you better not be a communist or you know one of those like there's the big red was this big enemy for the longest time and you know, people would say stuff like, um, oh, you don't want to go talk to that lady over at the corner of the whatever because uh, she uh, votes for the Communist Party. And, you know, you just don't know what kind of. And I was like, well, I don't even know what Communist Party is. And she seems like a nice person. And then turns out that her son was my best friend. So it was like, it's, yeah, well, I mean, it's one of those things where as a kid, I never noticed it. But then, as you grow older, you're starting to kind of get, oh, that's what they meant. Oh, that's what that uh, little auntie two doors down was saying, you know, about certain things. People talk a lot, in a, especially in uh, where I'm from. It's a very small community, so they, everybody knew each other. People are kind of like watching each other in a very subtle way so that no one kind of steps over the boundaries in a way. I don't think it's the case for everybody. I grew up in a very conservative area. It's not like, you know, the cows and rascals running around or anything like that. But, but we, actually, we didn't have convenience store until like I was in high school. We only had like three TV stations to turn into. So it wasn't out in the sticks, like out of nowhere, no man's land, but it certainly was not Tokyo. So when you grew up in a big city, 
like Tokyo or Osaka would have been a totally different story even in the uh, era that I grew up in. So you came to LA in 1999. What I mean, I know you said maybe that kind of what you experienced in terms of certain aspects of Japanese culture made you want to come here in terms of like feeling more like an individual and expressing yourself. Did you come here to play music or? Yes, I actually went to college in Osaka for four years. I met a lot of friends there. One of them uh, had uh, moved to L.A. and she had been here for a couple of years and I uh, came to visit in uh, one of the summer vacations and I just kind of uh, I mean I wouldn't say I fell in love with it but I really appreciated the weather appreciated the uh, just an openness I think it's one of those things that you could feel right oh it's people are a lot more open <laughs> open about things you know open sky open space wide open spaces beautiful beaches and the living cost was going to be, well, back then it was it was more affordable than, say, East Coast. Or uh, I was actually even thinking about visiting London. Or I was a kind of a big uh, UK classic rock guy and all that stuff. So I, was, I thought about actually maybe hopping over to that side of the pond and all that. Just to kind of check out what kind of music scenes that each city had. Osaka had its own thing, which I actually didn't really explore that much. But back then, I just my musical taste was just more influenced by English-driven music genre, jazz, Prague, funk, R&B, soul, all that stuff. So I had decided to at least spend a year or two and I, my study was English. I had a bachelor in English and I couldn't really speak a word of English and I felt like I should at least be able to communicate with the language that I have the degree with. So I decided to just basically see what it's like out in LA. I'm still here. <laughs> yeah, here you are. I know you describe yourself as a sound chaser. So is there something that inspires you to to be that or how would you define that for yourself i like that term because i'm a songwriter first and foremost because i feel the voice is the one instrument that i will always have right my primary instrument is guitar but like that kind of comes and goes actually since the quarantine i've been playing more piano and keyboards than guitars so it's not the instrument or even a song that I get drawn to, it's the sound. I love the sound that things make. I remember I was talking to my wife about it. I remember one of the first beat that I remember is, so my dad had a uh, small business growing up. He was a uh, running a, like a little knitting factory, basically. He was kind of creating children's clothes that would be shipped over to Russia and Canada, I think, back in those days, 80s. And he would have this, like about a dozen big machineries that generates the sheets of knitted material. And that would run almost all night, or at least late enough for me to kind of sleep to. So like one of the earliest sounds that I remember is like me falling asleep to this like dozen huge machineries underneath my bed just creating this like almost like a train track like sound throughout the entire night and i would always kind of like tune into that and try to kind of it's not really i wasn't really trying but like kind of finding the pattern in that and it was like 
probably was kind of thinking like bobbing my head to it without even thinking about it. Like there's certain sounds that kind of captures my curiosity, imagination, what have you. And that still is really just kind of where my, uh, a lot of my inspirations come from. A lot of times I just find like a, a new instrument to kind of mess with. And then, oh, that's a cool, cool sound. That's a great sound. Even with my own instrument guitar, there are a million ways of getting different sounds out of it. And that fascinates me the most. I think that's uh, where, I don't know where the term comes from. Actually, Sound Chaser, I think, might be one of the songs by Yes, the band, the, the, the prog rock band from 70s. I think they had a song called Sound Chaser, and I just kind of thought that was appropriate. I asked Shin more about the sound chasing in relation to his latest EP titled Six Songs from Insomnia, released in February. I mentioned that the first song, Nobody Somebody, reminded me of sound chasing while the last song, Hako, had a different sound than the rest of his album that was more jazzy. You're kind of right about the first and the last song because the last song I wasn't actually planning on including in the EP. I was going to actually make it as a five-song EP, but that last song is a, a Japanese song that I wrote 20 years ago, actually, and that I just never did anything with it. I don't remember why... But I decided to record it after everything else was recorded. I had two studio sessions for this album, and half of them didn't really make it because I wanted to have some sort of cohesiveness in the batch, right? Because I, I knew that I wasn't going to do like a concept album or anything like that, but I just at least wanted to, as I said, like I get really drawn to different types of sound and music styles and genre so it could sometimes be like kind of all over the map so i wanted to have certain aesthetical theme throughout the batch and i basically came down to five songs and then i think that song just kind of was in my head at the time and i decided to kind of record it really just kind of quickly with the rest of the songs in the EP in my mind. It's just trying to kind of match that sound. I think that song really came out the most efficient way. I mean, there's very little in that recording. It's just basically guitar, acoustic bass, and the rhythm machine, and my voice, and a few synthesizers to kind of embellish, but that's about it. I just wanted to make it really minimal. And the first song was very much like that, too. So in a way, the first and the last song were like two sides of the same thing. One is English and one is Japanese. I think that the first song is the newest song actually that I wrote and the oldest song that I wrote in a way. So it's basically like a two sides of the same soul and ideas presented in a similar way to kind of bookend the batch. So your observation is dead on. And if you're curious, here's a clip from the most recent song, Nobody Somebody, the one that reminded me of sound chasing. Life can be so boring. All of 
of us just conforming. Let's get that coffee going before the day comes to know. I was pretty thrilled that my observations were right, especially since I don't consider myself a music aficionado. As Shin mentioned, Hako, the oldest song, is in Japanese. I asked him to talk more about the lyrics. So I was in a long-distance relationship when I first came out here. I had a girl in Osaka, and she would... Um, this is 2000, right? And this is very much a uh, pre-iPhone, FaceTime... Skype wasn't even around, so you had to, to make a phone call, like international calls, and that was a costly business back then. You had to go out to 7-Eleven to buy a calling card. I don't even know if any of the listeners know what that is. It's just a piece of plastic that has the special number. It's like a prepaid card, basically. You call on the number to connect you to the numbers on the different country code and it'll basically just give you whatever half hour or whatever for i don't even remember how much it used to cost but it just was costly enough for us to decide that well let's not talk every day maybe we can talk every week and then unfortunately uh she got into a depression and she basically expressed that she wasn't really ready to talk to me on a regular basis. So we wrote each other, actually wrote letters, handwritten letters. And um, after, you know, about a year or so, I had had like stack of letters from her. And one day she sent me this uh, little box of uh I don't even remember what it was inside, to be honest with you, at this point. But there's just some trinkets, and it just it looked nice. It was nice and small. So I kind of kept the box around to basically stash away the letters in it. And that kind of became um, almost like a kind of physical representation of our relationship that we had. And after we broke up, I think I wrote a song about the box and what was inside and my feelings about it. And that's basically kind of a gist of the lyrics. And it's called Hako, and Hako basically means box. It's so heartwarming to think of writing letters to each other in this time, you know, even if it was 2000, that still was a time when a lot of things were much more digital. So, you know, even though it was kind of for this reason where, you know, she was feeling a little depressed, it still is, has a sweetness to it. Yeah, Um because my feeling towards, <laughs> obviously, her and the relationship that we had was warm, but there was also kind of like <laughs> guilt-ridden in a way because I was the one that left her, basically. You know, I could have just stayed and supported her through. I think she was having a hard time at her new job and, you know, me not being there probably had something to do with it. So it has kind of a bittersweet things to it. And I, that was... Definitely one of the first songs that I ever wrote in Japanese. And it I felt very exposed when I was, I think I just recorded like a quick demo back in those days. And I just kind of didn't do anything with it because it just, it was a little too, too revealing for me. And 
I was not brave enough to be that honest with my feelings, be it longing or sense of guilt. I'm pretty sure that guilt had a lot to do with it. I just felt just really guilty about how it had uh, turned out. And then this last uh, year or so, it just, I think I was cleaning out my hard drive and it just like that demo recording popped up, I believe. Oh no, I don't, I don't think it was even the demo recording. I think it was just a lyric sheet on a Word doc just this just came up and I was like, oh shoot, I did write that, didn't I? And I just read it and I, it's kind of spoke to me. It was like me being 21, 22 kind of speaking to me in a way, you know, do you remember you used to be like this? <laughs> and it was like, oh, it's just, I think I laughed and I just cried a little inside, you know, in a way I was like, oh, I was so innocent and I don't know what I don't know what the word is yeah you look back on relationships and you you know you get contemplative and you do kind of laugh and even though at that time you're heartbroken or there's all these emotions you can have some space from it right but it also was kind of refreshing to see how direct I was because of all these years of being in here just struggling to stay creative and just you know do this music thing or, or just in life right I mean I'm I really don't have that much to complain. I mean, I'm very fortunate. I count my blessings every day. But also, the life has kind of taken its toll. And I kind of almost forgot how basically kind of complicated my life in a, in, in a way. And the song is very simple. There's not much to the song, really. It's very, very J-pop, like if you actually kind of break it down, the, the musical aspect of things and everything. But the, just the lyrics were just so simple and minimalistic. It was kind of refreshing. I was like, I just, it almost didn't feel like something that I wrote. And yet that's what I wrote. And it was almost like a, <laughs> my uh, younger self kind of taught me something about the simplicity. <laughs> In a way, you know, the funny thing is, it did sound being the last song on the EP, like the bow on top of a present, you know, and the fact that it's called box, you know, is it's I feel like that's very fitting. That's kind of cute. I didn't even think about that. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I think that's great. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed um, this EP and I encourage all of you all to go listen and follow Shin on Spotify. It's also on Bandcamp. What other platforms can people find you on? I actually have stuff on YouTube as well. The album is available on Amazon Music, Google Play and all that stuff. But uh, yeah, Spotify, Apple Music, all that stuff is a good place to go. Bandcamp is great because uh, you can actually pay for it. And what I'm doing right now is all the money that I get from Bandcamp, I actually match it and donate to ACLU, Downtown Women's Center, and Little Tokyo Service Center. And this actually, I started even before the COVID, but especially now, and not everybody can do it. I totally understand. But if you can spare anything for those organizations that are like fighting, even outside of health workers, the, the people that are out there actually still fighting for the causes. We were just talking about it at the beginning of the podcast where like other issues are still around. It's not like it's just going away because of this whole thing. So I'm trying to just do my best to um, support the people that actually are making difference in a crazy world we live in. 
Yeah, well, that's good to know. So that's through Bandcamp, you said, right? Yes. Okay. Well, I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes as well as the individual organizations you mentioned so people can check those out. Also, you just go to my website, which is shinkawasaki.com. Everything is linkable from there. So if you can remember everything, just find me there on the .com. Yeah, definitely. I will link your website in the show notes as well. Thank you so much. I really learned so much from you about your past and the present and, you know, whatever might happen in the future. We'll see. <laughs> we sure we, sh- we will see. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Shin. I'm not going to lie. I was a little nervous about this episode because my knowledge about the variety and nuances of music isn't that strong, especially for someone like Shin who experiments with so many different styles and instruments. I worried that I'd ask a completely ridiculous question or get something wrong. But most of this episode explored Shin's migration story, and while his musical dreams definitely influenced his decision to come to the United States, there was so much more to tell. I hope you enjoyed Shin's music at the end. And remember, if you buy his music from Bandcamp, he donates to the causes listed in the show notes, so check those links out. As always, I'd like to thank my creative talent that helped me on this episode. Thank you so much to Tiffany Wong for your help with the Migrations cover art, and thank you to Shin Kawasaki for the Migration song, Find Another Way. Music was also provided by CC Mixter, by Airtone, with the song Resonance, and of course, Shin Kawasaki provided his songs, Nobody's Somebody and Hako. Last and definitely not least, thank you to Quincy Surasmith for editing this episode. And of course, I want to give a shout out to my $20 a month and above Patreon patrons. So thank you to my brother, Shaleen, Gina Manola, and Dahlia Gehan for your generous support. Thank you to all of my Patreon patrons. Remember, you could support this podcast by going to www.patreon.com migrations. This is Nisha Modi. Thank you again and until next time.